Chapter Twelve of Meridiana, The Adventures of Three Englishmen and Three Russians in South Africa. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Meridiana, The Adventures of Three Englishmen and Three Russians in South Africa by Jules Verne, translated by Ellen E. Frewer. Chapter Twelve: A Station to Sir John's Liking. So the Russian mathematician was found. When they asked him how he had passed those four days, he could not tell. He thought the whole story of the crocodiles was a joke and did not believe it. He had not been hungry. He had lived upon figures. Matthew Strux would not reproach his countrymen before his colleagues, but there was every reason to believe that in private he gave him a severe reprimand. The geodetic operations were now resumed, and went on as usual till the 28th of June, when they had measured the base of the 15th triangle, which would conclude the second and commence the third degree of the meridian. Here a physical difficulty arose. The country was so thickly covered with underwood that although the artificial signals could be erected, they could not be discerned at any distance. One station was recognized as available for an electric lamp. This was a mountain twelve hundred feet high, about thirty miles to the northwest. The choice of this would make the sides of this triangle considerably longer than any of the former, but it was at length determined to adopt it. Colonel Everest, Emery, Zorn, three sailors, and two book chessmen were appointed to establish the lighted signal, the distance being too great to work otherwise than at night. The little troop, accompanied by mules laden with the instruments and provisions, set off in the morning. The colonel did not expect to reach the base of the mountain till the following day, and however few might be the difficulties of the ascent, the observers in the camp would not see the lighted signal till the night of the twenty-ninth or thirtieth. In the interval of waiting, Strux and Palander went to their usual occupations, while Sir John and the Bushman shot antelopes. They found opportunity of hunting a giraffe, which is considered fine sport. Coming across a herd of twenty, but so wild that they could not approach within five hundred yards, they succeeded in detaching a female from the herd. The animal set off at first at a slow trot, allowing the horseman to gain upon her, but when she found them near she twisted her tail and started at full speed. The hunters followed for about two miles, when a ball from Sir John's rifle threw her onto her side and made her an easy victim. In the course of the next night, the two Russians took some altitudes of the stars, which enabled them to determine the latitude of the encampment. The following night was clear and dry, without moon and stars, and the observers impatiently watched for the appearance of the electric light. Strux, Palander, and Sir John relieved guard at the telescope, but no light appeared. They concluded that the ascent of the mountain had offered serious difficulty, and again postponed their observation till the next night. Great, however, was their surprise when, about two o'clock in the afternoon, Colonel Everest and his companions suddenly reappeared in camp. In answer to inquiries whether he had found the mountain inaccessible, Colonel Everest replied that although in itself the mountain was entirely accessible, it was so guarded that they found it necessary to come back for reinforcements. "'Do you mean,' said Sir John, "'that the natives were assembled in force?' "'Yes.' natives with four paws and black manes, who have eaten up one of our horses. The colonel went on to say that the mountain was only to be approached by a spur on the southwest side. In the narrow defile leading to the spur, a troop of lions had taken up their abode. These he had endeavored to dislodge, but, insufficiently armed, he was compelled to beat a retreat, after losing one of his horses by a single blow of a lion's paw. The recital kindled the interest of Sir John and the Bushman. Clearly it was a station worth conquering, and an expedition was at once arranged. 
All the Europeans, without exception, were eager to join. But it was necessary that some should remain at the camp to measure the angles at the base of the triangle. Therefore the colonel resolved to stay behind with Strux and Palander, while Sir John, Emery, and Zorn, to whose entreaties their chiefs had been obliged to yield, Mokum, and three natives on whose courage he could rely, made up the party for the attack. They started at four in the afternoon, and by nine were within two miles of the mountain. Here they dismounted, and made their arrangements for the night. No fire was kindled, Mokum being unwilling to provoke a nocturnal attack from the animals, which he wished to meet by daylight. Throughout the night the roar of the lions could almost incessantly be heard. Not one of the hunters slept for so much as an hour, and Mokum took advantage of their wakefulness to give them some advice from his own experience. "'From what Colonel Everest tells us,' he said calmly, "'these are black-maned lions, the fiercest and most dangerous species of any. They leap for a distance of sixteen to twenty paces.' and I should advise you to avoid their first bound. Should the first fail, they rarely take a second. We will attack them as they re-enter their den at daybreak. They are always less fierce when they are well filled. But they will defend themselves well, for here, in this uninhabited district, they are unusually ferocious. Measure your distance well before you fire. Let the animal approach, and take a sure aim near the shoulder. We must leave our horses behind. The sight of a lion terrifies them and therefore the safety of their rider is imperiled. We must fight on foot, and I rely on your calmness. All listened with silent attention. Mokum was now the patient hunter. Although the lion seldom attacks a man without provocation, yet his fury, when once aroused, is terrible, and therefore the bushman enjoined composure on his companions, especially on Sir John, who was often carried away by his boldness. Shoot at a lion, said Mokum, as calmly as if you were shooting a partridge. At four o'clock, only a few red streaks being visible in the far east, the hunters tied up their horses securely and left their halting place. Examine your guns, and be careful that your cartridges are in good trim, continued Mokum, to those who carried rifles, for the three natives were armed otherwise, satisfied with their bows of aloe, which already had rendered them good service. The party, in a compact group, turned towards the defile, which had been partially reconnoitred the evening before. They crept, like red Indians, silently between the trees, and soon reached the narrow gorge which formed the entrance. Here, winding between piles of granite, began the path leading to the first slopes of the spur. Midway the path had been widened by a landslip, and here was the cave tenanted by the lions. It was then arranged that Sir John, one of the natives, and Mokum, should creep along the upper edge of the defile, with the intention of driving out the animals to the lower extremity of the gorge. There, the two young Europeans and the other two Bochessmen should be in ambush to receive the fugitive beasts with shot and arrows. No spot could be better adapted for the maneuvers. The forked branches of a giant sycamore afforded a safe position, since lions do not climb, and the hunters, perched at a considerable height, could escape their bounds and aim at them under favorable conditions. William Emery objected to the plan as being dangerous for Sir John and the Bushmen, but the latter would hear of no modification, and Emery reluctantly acquiesced. Day now began to dawn, and the mountain top was glowing in the sun. Mokum, after seeing his four companions installed in the sycamore, started off with Sir John and the Bochessman, and soon mounted the devious path which lay on the right edge of the defile. Cautiously examining their path, they continued to advance. In the event of the lions having returned to their den and being at repose, it would be possible to make short work of them. After about a quarter of an hour the hunters, reaching the landslip before the cave to which Zorn had directed them, crouched down, and examined the spot. It seemed a wide excavation, 
though at present they could hardly estimate the size. The entrance was marked by piles of bones and remains of animals, demonstrating, beyond doubt, that it was the lion's retreat. Contrary to the hunter's expectation, the cave seemed deserted. He crept to the entrance and satisfied himself that it was really empty. Calling his companions, who joined him immediately, he said, "'Our game has not returned, Sir John, but it will not be long. I think we had better install ourselves in its place. Better to be besieged than besiegers, especially as we have an armed succor at hand. What do you think?' "'I am at your orders, Bochum,' replied Sir John. All three accordingly entered. It was a deep grotto, strewn with bones and stained with blood. Repeating their scrutiny, lest they should be mistaken as to the cave being empty, they hastened to barricade the entrance by piling up stones, the intervening spaces being filled with boughs and dry brushwood. This only occupied a few minutes, the mouth of the cave being comparatively narrow. They then went behind their loopholes and awaited their prey, which was not long in coming. A lion and two lionesses approached within a hundred yards of the cave. The lion, tossing his mane and sweeping the ground with his tail, carried in his teeth an entire antelope, which he shook with as much ease as a cat would a mouse. The two lionesses frisked along at his side. Sir John afterwards confessed that it was a moment of no little trepidation. He felt his pulses beat fast, and was conscious of something like fear, but he was soon himself again. His two companions retained their composure undisturbed. At the sight of the barricade, the beasts paused. They were within sixty paces. With a harsh roar from the lion, they all three rushed into a thicket on the right, a little below the spot where the hunters had first stopped. Their tawny backs and gleaming eyes were distinctly visible through the foliage. "'The partridges are there,' whispered Sir John. "'Let us each take one.' "'No,' answered Bochum softly. "'The brood is not all here, and the report of a gun would frighten the rest. "'Bochesman, are you sure of your arrow at this distance?' "'Yes, Bochum,' said the native. "'Then aim at the male's left flank, and pierce his heart.' The Bochesman bent his bow, and the arrow whistled through the brushwood. With a loud roar the lion made a bound, and fell. He lay motionless and his sharp teeth stood out in sharp relief against his blood-stained lips. "'Well done, Bochessman,' said Mokum. At this moment the lionesses, leaving the thicket, flung themselves on the lion's body. Attracted by their roar, two other lions and a third lioness appeared round the corner of the defile. Bristling with anger, they looked twice their ordinary size, and bounded forward with terrific roars. "'Now for the rifles!' cried the bushman. "'We must shoot them on the wing, since they will not perch.' The bushman took deliberate aim, and one lion fell as it were paralyzed. The other, his paw broken by Sir John's bullet, rushed towards the barricade, followed by the infuriated lionesses. Unless the rifles could now be brought successfully to bear, the three animals would succeed in entering their den. The hunters retired, their guns were quickly reloaded, two or three lucky shots, and all would be well. But an unforeseen circumstance occurred which rendered the hunters' situation to the last degree alarming. All at once a dense smoke filled the cave. One of the wads, falling on the dry brushwood, had set it alight, and soon a sheet of flames, fanned by the wind, lay between the men and the beasts. The lions recoiled, but the hunters would be suffocated if they remained where they were. It was a terrible moment, but they dared not hesitate. "'Come out! Come out!' cried Mokum. They pushed aside the brushwood with the butt-ends of their guns, knocked down the stones, and, half-choked, leaped out of the cloud of smoke. The native and Sir John had hardly time to collect their senses when they were both knocked over. The African, struck on the chest by one of the lionesses, lay motionless on the ground. Sir John, who received a blow from the tail of the other, thought his leg was broken, and fell on his knees. 
but just as the animal turned upon him, a ball from the bushman arrested her, and, meaning a bone, exploded in her body. At this instant, Zorn, Emery, and the two bochessmen appeared opportunely, although unsummoned, hastening up the defile. Two lions and one lioness were dead, but two lionesses and a lion with a broken paw were still sufficiently formidable. The rifles, however, performed their duty. A second lioness fell, struck in both head and flank. The third lioness and the wounded lion bounded over the young men's heads, and amid a last salute of balls and arrows disappeared round the corner of the defile. Sir John uttered a loud hurrah. The lions were conquered. Four carcasses measured the ground. With his friend's assistance, Sir John was soon on his feet again. His leg was not broken. The natives soon recovered his consciousness, being merely stunned by the blow from the animal's head. An hour later, the little troop, without further trace of the fugitive couple, regained the thicket where they had left their horses. Well, said Mokum to Sir John, I hope you like our African partridges. Delightful, delightful, said Sir John, rubbing his leg. But what tales they have, to be sure. End of chapter 12 Recording by Todd